This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, getting an ADHD diagnosis can seem impossible. Not only are the waiting lists so long, but the cost as well. So many young Australians are paying thousands of dollars. A lot cannot afford it. So what's the answer here? How do we make sure that people are getting the help they need? Well, we're going to be taking a dive into ADHD later in the podcast, the stresses of getting a diagnosis, and we'll be hearing plenty of your stories. Also coming up, we're taking you to a regional Victorian community where young people have been given a huge platform to improve their lives. First, though, hack. It is critically important that the outcome we get has integrity for the family because that is what they deserve. On Triple J. Yeah, there's a story that's been in the news this week that's horrified a lot of you. And you've probably spoken about it quite a bit with your family, with your mates. An old woman with dementia who was tasered by police in her nursing home in the town of Cooma in New South Wales last week has died. 95-year-old Claire Nowland died last night. A police officer has been charged with a few offences, including recklessly causing grievous bodily harm and has been suspended from duty. Look, this case has shocked and outraged the community. There are calls for an investigation, an independent investigation. It's raised a lot of questions about the use of tasers by police in Australia. Should police be using them at all? If so, when? I wanted to open this discussion up and let's ask someone who knows a bit about it. Emma Ryan is a criminologist at Deakin University. She actually did her PhD on tasers and she's with us now. Hey, Emma, thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Uh, It's my pleasure. Look, there's a lot of discussion about tasers this week in Australia. People very familiar with this story, but there've been a lot of questions about the use of tasers for years, right? Oh, yeah. Yep, very much so, especially around their safety. So what is the story with tasers in Australia? Like, how long have they been used in this country? Mm. Yeah, okay. So they were first introduced into, um, you know, special operations or special tactics police in Western Australia, actually, in about 2000, I think and into tactical response police groups across the country incrementally after that. And then based on sort of coroner's findings, really, where it was thought that a taser might have been able to avoid usually a firearms death, um, they've found their way into general duties policing. So we've had them for, you know, a good 15 years in general duties policing now. Okay, so and the intention obviously was to cut back shootings, I would imagine. Is that what's happened? No, it isn't what's happened. It, it doesn't seem, well, in fact, obviously um, deaths that are caused by police bullets are pretty well recorded and we can see they fluctuate year to year ordinarily, but uh, we had an all-time high of 16 people killed in 2019-2020, uh, which is the most recent data that I've seen. Uh, so, no, they haven't in any way reduced firearms deaths, you know, so we need to ask the question, what are they doing? <laughs> so what are the rules about the use of tasers? Like, is it different in each state? Does it depend on which police force we're talking about? Look, they're broadly similar. The policies that I've examined um, are broadly similar, provide broadly similar warnings. Uh, Northern Territory stands out for warning against use against Indigenous people. None of the other policies do that. Um, 
But broadly speaking, they're pretty similar and they suggest that tasers should only be used, you know, to protect life or to prevent you know, imminent bodily harm. What about the data around the use of tasers in Australia? Is there, are there questions there? Is there a lot of data that's available? There's hardly any data that's available, okay. Dave, and that's one of my key concerns. So, you know, I can look at New South Wales, uh, sorry, New Zealand and see what's going on there with taser use. I can look at Britain, I can look at Ireland. America's very blurry, obviously. Um, but in Australia, there are no publicly um, accessible statistics that, that need to be produced. There, are, there have been a few ad hoc uh, reports and reviews, etc. So the New South Wales Ombudsman last reported taser use to the public in 2012. Um, and we've had a couple of other um, state-based reviews as well. But in terms of what's been happening recently, there's very little. We've got Next to nothing except for uh, what the media applies for through freedom of information, of course, which I don't think we should have to rely on. We've got some messages coming through. Somebody says it's horrible what happened, but the media and public seems to care more about this story rather than, you know, the ongoing systemic racial discrimination and violence uh, within police and tasers, tasers being used in other situations. Someone mm -hmm. says they should be using tasers more than guns, but in this situation, surely an old woman uh, with a steak knife could have been restrained. What mm -hmm. happened to police training? That was someone there. Do you think that this, Emma Ryan, might be this story, the death of Claire Nalland, which is obviously devastating, could be mm. what it takes to get more data or to get some change here in terms of taser use? Yeah, potentially it may well be because obviously the general public has a, a whole lot of sympathy um, for Mrs Nalland and for her family and we can only imagine what an awful, awful circumstance to have to sort of live with. I mean, that family has to live with this reality going forward. So I think this one will stick in the public imagination and perhaps, you know, make people sit up and think, well, you know, are tasers being used in the appropriate circumstances, in the circumstances that we would, you know, support? Because police are accountable to the public at the end of the day. So if we sit on our hands and just accept that they use force as judiciously as they can, then we really, you know, risk what we call in the trade um, mission creep or function creep, where the weapon's intended to deal with really critical incidents, but over time it, you know, begins to be used in much more mundane situations, and especially against unarmed people. That's a, a sort of regular trend uh, in the uh, data that is available overseas, and I'd be surprised if those patterns were different here. We've got... You know, the key questions really are what kinds of people uh, are we using tasers against and f to control what kinds of behaviours? You know, if they're, they're very sort of routine, ordinary policing interactions, then there's a problem with that kind of coercive policing style, especially for Indigenous people. We've got a message here saying, I'm not saying what happened is ideal, but why is the question not asked how many lives and situations tasers have saved? I'm an ex-police officer. Situations are a lot harder than they used to be. You know, there might be a lot of people, Emma Ryan, saying, well, being tasered is a lot better than being shot. Um, what would your response to that be? Well, I guess I'd look at the data from New Zealand and say, 
you know, in 2019, there was 1,267 uses of TASER. So were all of the, were 1,200, would they all be appropriate for firearms? If they were, we would be seeing much higher levels of shootings than we currently are. Does that make sense? So yeah. tasers used are, are presented much more frequently than a firearm. You can only present a firearm in a critical incident as a police officer. And the taser rules suggest that the same is, uh, applies to a taser. But, well, I can only guess what the practice reflects in Australia, but I know what it looks like overseas. Criminologist Emma Ryan from Deakin University, really appreciate your insight into this. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. Yeah. You're really welcome. Thanks. We've got some more messages coming through. Someone says, what about police officers' injuries? I bet there's a decrease since they're being used, tasers that is. Someone else says, the issue is that police should not be sent out for mental health issues. They don't have the skills or expertise or even the remit for attending those call-outs. Look, a lot of messages coming through on that one. We will be hearing a lot more about it, I'm sure, in the weeks and months ahead. Time to move on. Hack! It's a really big opportunity for me and other people to come here. On Triple Jack. Hey, if you had the chance to change your community, make it better for young people, what would you do? You can do whatever you want. Build new things, come up with new programs. I don't know, we know growing up in the country can be amazing. I grew up in the country, loved it. Also know it can be really tough especially if you're isolated, can be pretty boring as well. Well, some young people in the regional Victorian town of Mildura have been given a huge platform to raise awareness of the issues important to them. And it's part of the ABC's Takeover Mildura campaign. Well, I'm very happy to say that our own hack reporter, Kimberly Price, has been spending the week with some of these brilliant storytellers and she joins us now from Mildura. Hey, Kim, thanks for coming on Hack. First, can you explain what Takeover Mildura actually is? So you may remember last year, Triple J went to take over Shepparton. So this is the second version of that same program where basically a group of young people uh, submit stories about their lives that are very varied. You know, some of these stories talk about family connections through cooking or playing piano, while others go into, you know, more deeper issues such as uh, migration and uh, trying to get citizenship in Australia. So there's a varied amount of stories. Once these stories are selected, the kids come on this program for a week, which I'm currently here, and that's the takeover program. During this week, they get together and think of ideas that can benefit their community. And at the end of the week, they present these ideas to change makers in the Mildura community and there's actually funding available at the end of the week where these change makers can sort of uh, link onto an idea with these students, decide that they're going to go after this funding and make these ideas a reality for the Mildura community. Amazing. I mean, that sounds so good that the actions are, you know, the words are put into action, I should say. What are some of the issues in Mildura that young people want to fix? So I think a big stereotype with regional Australia that a lot of people can relate to is there's not much to do. So that seems to be a recurring thing that I'm hearing from these young people, but their ideas are more around how do we harness that idea of, you know, there's not a lot going on and create sort of beneficial uh, places, social settings for young people to thrive. So uh, they're all based around different sort of topics 
topics that are uh, topics in the news that we hear about. So one of them is discrimination, one of them is mental health, one of them is social settings, and each of these groups under those topics um, have the ideas and two of the groups have actually sort of got similar ideas of creating a social space where people can go and seek mental health support or just chill out, you know, creating a safe space um, so kids, you know, aren't on the street maybe getting up to a bit of mischief that can go down a pretty negative path later on in life or they can use this space to study. Uh, Another idea is a mentorship program between, uh, you know, people in the community who have become doctors, lawyers, farmers, builders, whatever it may be, linking them with the kids that want to uh, pursue these careers and having that connection so the people who have already got there can tell these young people how to get there and how to do it well. So lots of different ideas basing around how these kids can thrive right now but also into the future. Yeah, look, there's so much going on. Kim, let's listen to some of the young people you've been speaking with. I'm here in Victoria's Sunraysia country this week as part of Takeover Mildura. To get here, the young people send in stories on anything about themselves. My story is about a personal migrant journey and it follows a snapshot of the harsh realities that a family endures. East Turkestan is one of the most persecuted minorities in the world. So my story is about like emu eggs. Yeah, we just look for tracks leading to the nest. The kids here love Mildura. The best thing about Mildura is the people here. I really enjoy the community and the opportunities I get to go out and have fun. The nature of Mildura is really calm and collective. You know your neighbours because we're all in the farming business together. But one thing the young people want is more opportunity. There's not enough to do sometimes. We don't get a lot of the stores or just services that other towns have, even if they're on a lower scale than us. Mm -hmm. Like, we miss out on a few things, definitely. As part of Takeover Mildura, the students develop ideas to improve their community. And at the end of the week, they present those ideas to non-for-profits from across the region, who can then apply for funding to make these ideas become a reality. We have proposed doing public speaking in front of year 11 and 12 classes to educate them on financial responsibility. As people become financially independent, it is more and more difficult to survive. We want to have a place where students can go that's not a library or a school club and they can just unwind and study there because kids honestly don't want to study when it's white walls or in a library or they're told to be quiet. This week gives teenagers the chance to have their voices heard and make an actual difference in their community. Hi, my name is Lauren Ryan. I'm from the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal. Part of our role here is to connect them with local organisations and local change makers to really broaden their networks and show them that there are organisations within Mildura that believe in them, believe in their ideas. And for a lot of young people, it means the world to have their voices heard. I feel proud that I can finally show my story. It's been great, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Um, I'm glad to have the opportunity to come here and to experience it all, yeah. Hack on Triple J. Uh, Kimberly Price speaking to a lot of young people in Mildura. 
great storytellers. They've got such interesting things to say, and we're going to be bringing you those stories over the next little bit on Hack, so make sure you keep listening. I asked before, I said, what would you like to see in your community? And we've had some people message in. Gus reckons he'd like to see lights at the skate parks. That's what he wants. Another person says, you've got to have fun shit to do or we go a bit mad. It's true. We all want fun shit to do. Hack. If this video feels satisfying to watch, then you may have ADHD. If you think you have ADHD, do this test. On Triple J. You know, one of the big barriers for people living with ADHD is finding out if they've actually got ADHD. We know there's been a big rise in the amount of people being diagnosed in recent years, a lot more awareness. I'm sure you've seen a heap of stuff on TikTok. Have you recently been diagnosed? What was the process like? Like we heard from Jordan Barr before and was saying, you know, it was pretty hard. Was it a nightmare? Message in 0439757555. There's a new kind of ADHD clinic that's cashing in on this massive demand for diagnosis. They're charging patients as much as $3,000 for an assessment. And some of these clinics are offering $900,000 salaries to psychiatrists who come and work for them. It's wild, right? Ange Lavoie-Pierre has been investigating the most expensive clinics for ABC Everyday's Schmeitgeist podcast. So I was ringing around trying to find different places and I, I did get one place and it was hit one for this, hit two for this, hit four for ADHD assessments. I hit that number didn't answer, didn't ring, it just went to nothing and hung up. You couldn't even leave a message. Welcome to the back of the queue for an ADHD psychiatrist in Australia. Make yourself at home. Anita Wall joined it last year, even though she already had an ADHD diagnosis, but her psychiatrist had disappeared on her right when she was due for her two-year medication review, which is a requirement for accessing stimulants like dexamphetamine and Ritalin. So with her supplies running low, her GP referred her to a new clinic and things took a turn. They were saying to me that I needed a complete new diagnosis and assessment, which was not true. When I challenged that, I was met with, no, 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 we do things differently. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, that's not right. I'm not paying for a whole new diagnosis. Anita was quoted more than $1,500 for the re-diagnosis she didn't want. And if she had been re-diagnosed and ended up on their treatment plan, the clinic would have collected almost $17,000, a combination of Medicare contributions and Anita's out-of-pocket fees. It was disgusting and actually cashing in on people's disadvantage, which is just horrific. And I didn't pay anything and I walked away. And then that's when I, I cried <laughs> and thought it was hopeless. Eventually, she found a different psychiatrist who sorted her out but not until after she'd run out of meds. Anita is one of tens of thousands of people who've called the ADHD Foundation's helpline. Well, there's definitely been an increase. So year on year, the call centres are getting flooded more and more with people who are in distress. Christopher Wiesman is a director of the ADHD Foundation, and he says a lot of the calls are about fees. We're seeing clinics 
popping up everywhere and some of them are charging up to $3,000 for a diagnosis. $3,000, that is really at the upper end of what I've heard about. How common is that? Look, we have uh, lots of anecdotal evidence to support the fact that the $3,000 is not an uncommon number. The average seems to be between $1,500 to $2,500. 3000 is certainly at the extreme, but there's a lot of people charging that. So all specialists in Australia, including psychiatrists, are able to charge whatever they want. There's no cap on fees. And because the public system very rarely treats ADHD in adults, people are forced to either pay the market rate in the private sector or go without treatment. The clinics we're talking about aren't all the same, but usually they have a few things in common. In most cases, they only offer telehealth, they deliver quick diagnoses, charge high fees and pay high salaries. Schmeitgeist has seen recruitment emails and text messages sent from multiple clinics to external psychiatrists promising huge take-home pay. For example... Over $900,000 per annum. Minimum income guarantee $3,800 per day. Signing bonus $3,000. It's entrepreneurial individuals who have seen a market need and have sought to exploit that need. They charge whatever they need to or whatever they can in order to secure the maximum amount of profit. There's an argument to be made that the quality of care in some instances is being compromised at the same time as the fees are higher than ever. $2,500 is a huge amount of money to put on something that I have no idea what it's going to mean and if it's going to make a difference. At the moment, the most promising sign of change is the ongoing Senate inquiry into ADHD. It's looking into access to treatment, including meds. It's even going to consider whether ADHD belongs on the NDIS. It's due to report back in September. The healthcare system needs to wake up and do a better job because you wouldn't treat cancer patients like this. You just wouldn't. This is very different to cancer, but still we have a right to access what we need. Hack on Triple J. Ange Lavoie-Pierre with that story. And you can listen to the full story on the ABC Schmart Guys podcast. You can go check it out. We're getting a lot of your experiences through on the text line. Matt in Ngunnawal Country says, I spent over two grand being diagnosed by a psychologist for ADHD. And after all the time and money spent, I've learnt the diagnosis means nothing as I wasn't diagnosed by a psychiatrist and I have to go through it all again. Laura says, I got my diagnosis last year, such a difficult uh, and unfriendly journey. And we've got someone else, Luann, on the line from Mackay. Hey, Luann, you've recently been diagnosed. What was your experience like? Hey, Dev. Um, it hasn't been great, really. So since the beginning, I went and saw my GP. They sent me to a psychologist. Um, I paid for those appointments on my own. Um, I don't get, um, I don't have private health, so it's big chunk of money so it's about 190 and then you get about I think it's 70 or 80 dollars back off Medicare yeah. so I did the full 10 um, appointments of that only for her to tell me yeah you need to go see a psychiatrist um, oh. to be assessed for ADHD um, and then in Mackay and like other regional areas the psychiatrists are fully booked um, for like up to a year two years in Mackay, like yeah. to get a spot is you're very, very lucky. I was very lucky. My mum is actually works in um, medical reception, so she was able to yeah. talk to them and get me a cancelled appointment. Well, now that cost me five hundred dollars, then three hundred dollars, and another three hundred dollars. So I've had three appointments, and it's already cost me 
over a grand. Yeah, it all adds up, Luann, and we're hearing from so many other people with similar experiences, especially in regional Australia. I appreciate you calling up and, you know, sharing your experience with us, Luann. Let's talk to an expert now. I've got Professor David Coghill uh, with us. He's the president of the Australian ADHD Professionals Association. Hey, Dave, welcome to Hack. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I guess, to be here. Oh, thank you. I guess the question a lot of people have is why is it costing so much to get an ADHD diagnosis in Australia right now? Yeah, I think that your um, correspondents, your contributors have, you know, identified some of the issues. It's not just one issue. But the real problem is that we don't have enough professionals trained and active working within the ADHD space. Um, it's very different, for example, from the autism space where there are an awful lot of people working there now. In ADHD, it's really been neglected for so long. Um, and, and my colleagues, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist by trade, um, but my colleagues have really not bought into ADHD until until recently. And so it is one of those supply and demand um, issues that we have. And it's not going to be an easy nut to crack. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Especially you there saying that your colleagues took a while to come on board. It seems like we're learning so much more about it. There's definitely a lot more awareness and people are seeing that on their social media, especially lots of uh, videos explaining things that maybe they didn't know before. I'm wondering, someone says, you know, I was super lucky to be diagnosed in the early days of the pandemic lockdowns. The wait times and cost were enormous. It took months of multiple appointments and cost well over $1,000 all up. Another person, where has this spike in demand for diagnosis come from? It sounds like a lot of people are self-diagnosing and then trying to find a specialist to tell them what they want to hear. What do you think, Dave? Like, how common is ADHD and how big is the spike being? Yeah, so in, in children and adolescents, somewhere between 5 and 7% of people have ADHD. In adults, it's around 2.5%. And the rates of diagnosis in Australia traditionally have been much below that. So ADHD has been under-recognised and under-treated in Australia. We're now seeing more children and adolescents, so we're catching up to that 5 to 7%. But in adults, still only 1 in 10 have a diagnosis. So the spike we're seeing, a lot of that spike, it's not about ADHD being more common. It's about people understanding more about what ADHD is and how many people have been missed with their diagnosis um, in, in, in the past. Yeah, we're getting a lot of messages through. Someone says, even after getting diagnosed, people don't believe I have ADHD, including my family. It's really isolating. Another person says, I was diagnosed with ADHD a year ago. I was extremely lucky to get an appointment with a psychiatrist six months after my referral was accepted by the practice. I need to book a couple of months in advance. Let's go to another caller. Aaron's on the line. Aaron, you've been diagnosed. What's your experience been like? Yeah, hey, mate. Um, yeah, look, it has been difficult. Like, the di getting diagnosed is, is definitely, like, um, hard in itself. But another thing that's really hard that I found was the medication and finding the right medication and the right dose. That's an, a lot of work and a lot of appointments and a lot of money in itself just, just yeah, once you've been diagnosed. Right. Um, but, yeah, just, like, the process as well of getting diagnosed took quite some time for me. I, I flew interstate to Sydney to get an appointment because a lot of the wait times in Melbourne – 
were ridiculous. And then now it's getting a bit harder to have those appointments over Zoom with the original person that I got diagnosed with. So I'm trying to source now someone in Melbourne. But yeah, I've been like getting refused from places because of the, either the books are closed or the wait times are too long. Um, yeah, but it's just it's just really challenging for yeah. for someone. I find that you know once they're diagnosed as well, the the next challenge is the medication side of things. That's really um, interesting, Aaron. You're saying yeah, like it's not it's not all over with the diagnosis. There's no, so that's much right. more. It's, just, it's like a, a beginning journey. It yeah. does make sense for a lot of things, you know, from childhood and stuff like that. For a lot of people that have been diagnosed, but yeah, for people that you know want to find the medication, you, know, yeah. you get some people. Like I've had a, a person I work with at the moment that said, oh, he's he's on the medication. It's amazing. It's like, you know, changed his life. And, yeah. and I've, I've been on almost all of them now besides non-stimulants. And it's been really hard to find something that's worked without, you know, severe side effects. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for calling in with your experience. Um, it's, you know, it's it's hard for a lot of people. I want to go back uh, to Dr. For Professor Dave Coghill from the Australian ADHD Professionals Association. Dave, there's probably a lot of people self-diagnosing using, you know, TikTok and stuff like that. I imagine that's a bit worrying for professionals. Yeah, it is. I mean, diagnosing ADHD is a skilled business. And, you know, one of the things, and it's it's hard to say this in a way, but you can't do a quick diagnosis. You need to take time. And in the private setting, I guess that's going to cost money. But taking time, doing it properly is really, really important because we have to know that we're secure with that diagnosis. I heard a lot of people saying earlier on in the program that um, they had to see a psychologist, then a psychiatrist. Part of that's because it's the psychiatrists that can prescribe. But I think these professional groups need to work together a lot more. And so you can't really do a self-diagnosis. You can't do a self-diagnosis for ADHD, but you can Uh, expect your professionals to work together to trust each other and to try and help that process. We're going to make a strong representation to the Senate inquiry that we need more services, that we need more funding. Professor Dave Coghill, I'm so sorry to cut you off there. It's been really interesting. You've got a few fans on the text line as well, people who know your work. We very much appreciate you coming on Hack and a lot more messages. Uh, You know, people saying hearing all these stories is what stops me from trying to get a diagnosis for ADHD. That was from Claire. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.